0: This is the Game Dev Field Guide, bonus episode number 14. Today's special guest, Luke Kleinberg. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by our community patrons. Basically, everyone who listens gets it for free, uh, but it's all thanks to the generosity of our patrons. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show, sponsor a third episode every month like this one, as well as vote on episode topics, I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. I also have a few other announcements to make here at the beginning of the episode. Um, the episode schedule for this month is going to be a little bit weird because I am going on vacation at the end of the month. So yeah, for the next, um, I would say, three weeks or so, the episode schedule might be a little bit frantic, but there will be episodes coming out uh, a lot at the beginning of this month, and then later at the month it might, I might go quiet for a little bit as I'll be on vacation. So just bear with me on that. It might not come out like perfectly every Wednesday night, but there will be uh, a full month's worth of episodes probably condensed down into the next two or three weeks. And the other announcement I want to make is that next month's Game Jam will be our, I guess, annual now, uh, June Team Jam. So if you don't know how that works, it's something we did last year, actually where I set up a little channel in our Discord for people to sign up, and then when that jam comes around next month, I will make everyone into teams. And yeah, it'll be a game jam uh, exclusively for teams. You don't have to use our matchmaking system. You could just invite your friends or people you know. But it's a really good way to get a completed game under your belt if maybe you only have like one part of the picture. Maybe you're only good at the art stuff right now and you can't really program, um, you can still contribute to a team and maybe we can even match you and we probably will match you with someone who can program but is not so great at the art stuff. Last year we aimed for like teams of three to four people, usually all in the same time zone. And I tried to make sure that every team had an anchor, so to speak, someone who's like completed a game jam game before. So that uh, each team, you know, had a good chance of success. So yeah, if you're looking to sign up for that Team Game Jam, that'll be next month. Um, but I will open up the sign-ups as soon as I'm done recording this, actually. I'll go over to the Discord and make the sign-up sheet. You'll find that in the Team Jam Find Group channel. There is a open invite link in the show notes to our community's Discord. And on that Discord is where we'll do the sign-ups and do the whole jam stuff, so... Yeah, go check it out. With the intro and announcements out of the way, let's move on over to the first segment of the show. The first segment of bonus episodes is always buff-de-buff. It's a game we play where community members and listeners post sort of small topics, like minuscule topics, really. And I do an extremely quick take without doing that much research mostly no research at all, I just say what's off the top of my head. And I say whether or not I think the topic is buffed, which means it's good or it's trending up or it's something I like, or debuffed, which means it's bad or something I think that's maybe moving in the wrong direction. And I try as hard as I can not to middle line it, Um, but as you'll find in game dev, there's always a middle ground uh, and finding the balance between pros and cons. So. These are just my quick reactions. I might be wrong on some of these. In fact, I'll probably be wrong on some of them for sure. But anyways, let's start buff-debuffed. The first topic is persistent character data. And this comes in the context of how much data I guess you should store when it comes to characters. And this is kind of more like focused on customization items. Think about in an RPG, for instance, maybe something like Skyrim, like how much information do you store and transfer between worlds or zones or however your game works? I think this topic and question is really more a topic and question about scope. I would say storing a bunch of data that has to do with your characters is debuffed from a making it standpoint, right? That can be really annoying to track all of that and transfer it between files and areas and stuff like that. But I can't deny that it doesn't make for a more customizable and better RPG experience. So really, you have to think about this from the angle of scope. If your game hinges on a strong and deep customizable RPG experience, then of course you're going to have to have it And it's buffed because it's good for providing that experience, but it's debuffed because it's going to be kind of annoying to make. But if your game doesn't really need it, maybe it's a FPS action game, you can store way less of this data. And to me, that's double buffed. One, because all of that data anyways doesn't really serve the purposes of an FPS game. And in the overall grand scheme and design, it'll be easier to make. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of a hard topic to say whether or not it's buffed or debuffed because it's not really something you can have an opinion on. It's more of like, do you need it or not? If I had to pick one, I guess I would say that persistent character data is, I guess, debuffed. (laughs) It's just, it's impossible to say. It's debuffed unless you're making an RPG where it's pretty much acquired and then, of course, it's buffed. Like I said, it's kind of an on-or-off thing. There's no opinion with that, I guess. The next topic is morality decision-making. And this is meant in the context of games like Fable, Knights of the Old Republic, and Horizon Zero Dawn, where your choices, um, maybe in a dialogue tree or in some kind of game mechanic or event, actually affect your character and the story and is actually significant in the long run. These are all good examples of it. I would say morality decision-making is buffed if it actually does do what it implies, which is change the game significantly. A lot of games, I think, try to do this morality decision-making thing, but in the long run it doesn't actually matter, and the story ends up being the same. A good example of that is the Telltale Walking Dead series. Where, on your first playthrough, um, you think you're making these really significant, hard, moral decisions. But the more you play the game, the more you realize that it doesn't really matter what decisions you made. The overall story was always going to play out in the way that it was written. And I understand why games do this, of course. You can't have, like, infinite choices. The branching dialogue tree gets way too big if it truly does affect the story kind of like trying to capture that butterfly effect of me making a decision now affects the next one and the next one and the next one exponentially. But I think if you go to Knights of the Old Republic or Fable, you will find better examples of this kind of morality system that doesn't tie itself so closely to the story that it's too constricting, but it still affects your character and the world enough where it makes it interesting. So yeah, I would say morality decision-making overall is buffed so long as you do it right. And to do it right, I wouldn't tie it too close to the story. Next topic is art-driven game design. I'm not really sure what this person meant by art-driven game design. Uh, Maybe they meant, like, for instance, how I design games. I focus on the gameplay uh, first, and then I kind of use the art to make it look nice. Maybe by this they mean... Focus on an artistic expression you want to make first, and then find gameplay that helps with that. Like, instead of making it playable and fun and then look pretty, you make it look pretty and then playable and fun. For me personally, I think this is debuffed, um, just because it's not the way that I like to do it. But I fully recognize that this is very subjective thing. People whose main core strength is art, and they maybe they approach game dev from an art perspective, uh, probably do art-driven game design, and it's something that I've been thinking about actually for my next project. Um, the advantage of doing art-driven game design, or at least uh, the idea of doing art first, is that you can start marketing really early on because you have a more complete and good-looking look, I guess, from the beginning. A lot of times, it's hard to market your game design first games because I kinda do like a white box method where nothing really looks like anything it's just white boxes moving around and of course in my head I know what they're all doing but to make marketing materials out of that and show someone else it's really hard whereas if you do art driven game design first you can make gifs and share them on Twitter a lot faster and get that uh, marketing process started for your game So it definitely has its pros, but for me personally, uh, I find game design is my strength, and so I would rather do um, game mechanics-driven game design. So for that, for me personally, I think it's debuffed. Next we have an explicit effect exposed to the player on dialogue options. I think this is meant in the context of a game like Fallout New Vegas, where let's say you have a high intelligence on your character sometimes you'll get a dialogue option that's like an intelligence check and it'll say if your intelligence is higher than this then this will happen and it explicitly tells you what happens or it might say something like if your charisma is this high then you'll pass this check and you'll get past the guard but if it's lower than that it's going to start a fight immediately and you'll have to fight it'll end the dialogue tree I think this is actually really smart game design because it removes confusion around what is sometimes the hardest part about dialogue trees, and that's writing things that everyone is going to understand the intention. English especially is such a weird language that sometimes when you write out the dialogue options, the way that it's written can make it sound like your character is going to do one thing when the game designers and writers have decided that that dialogue option actually means something else. So just labeling the explicit effects that are going to happen just removes all that confusion and it doesn't really sacrifice any immersion or anything like that to me. I think we all understand the limitation that we can't actually talk and voice our opinions in games and so we're going to have to have some kind of interpreter, like a game writer, a dialogue options writer. And so it would just be nice to know very clearly and explicitly what we mean like, is our character being sarcastic, or are they making a serious threat? That's a really important thing to know, uh, and not something you can only understand by just reading text. So those explicit effects, to me, are buffed. Next, we have QuickTime events. And I know QuickTime events have kind of fallen out of favor, and some people see it as, like, lazy game design. But I gotta say, personally, I think QuickTime events are buffed. I think it's a really cool way to keep the player engaged while watching a cinematic. But I do think you have to be careful around their failure states. I don't think it should ever be a QuickTime event where if you fail it, you have to restart the cinematic. That could be really annoying. I think you just maybe include some extra frames in whatever the QuickTime event is, where there's a loss and a win. If they do it right, then it just goes to the win state. If there's a loss... You play a few frames of animation of whatever the loss is. Maybe you meant to jump over something in the quick time event and you missed it. Maybe your player trips but then gets back up and starts running again along the same path. And they lose, I don't know, a little bit of health or some items or something like that. Quick time events where you just fail after one miss input can be extremely frustrating and can kind of like lessen the impact of the overall cinematic because the person has to watch it more than once. So yeah I think you put on just enough stakes like losing items or health or maybe after five times missing it they do the character does die. You put just enough stakes like that on it for the player to feel nervous and feel engaged and actually try hard during the quick time events but you don't make it so punishing that they actually come to resent the cinematic. If you do it that way, I think quick time events are buffed. And the last topic for today is mouse-only control schemes. I think for indie devs, this is incredibly buffed. I think it does a really good job of keeping the scope of your game overall small, because you're only going to have one input. And if you're only ever going to have one input, you won't find anything more diverse than the mouse. Because really, it's not one input. I mean, you have like at least two buttons, maybe more, and you have 2D directional control, not to mention you can put clickable buttons on the screen. So it's really versatile but also does a good job of keeping the scope in check and oftentimes for our monthly game jams I'll have the theme modifier which is just kinda like an extra thing. I'll have it be mouse-only controls just to try and guide people who are making monthly game jam games to reduce their scope and think about making a game that only requires a few simple inputs like moving the mouse up and down, left and right, and a few button clicks. So yeah, for that I think mouse only control schemes are buffed. And that's going to do it today for buffed debuffed. If you have a good idea for a topic, you can go onto our community Discord and type it in the buff debuff channel. And eventually, I'll get to it. I don't think we're actually that far behind. In fact, I think I've caught up with most of the topics so far. If you have a good idea, go post it. There's a good chance it'll get read on the next bonus episode. With the first segment out of the way, let's move on over to the second segment of the show. The second segment of the show, as always, is a key thought from a special guest. Today's special guest is Luke Kleinberg who has been around our community for a while and has been a game dev for even longer. He is the co-founder and producer at Future Salt Entertainment. And that's important because today his talk is going to teach us about production, planning, and most importantly, I think, execution. And yeah, you should really take this information in uh, because you can just save yourself a ton of hassle in game dev. It's already hard. And so coming into it with a good plan is pretty much a requirement. So yeah, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Luke Kleinberg.
1: Thanks, Zach, for inviting me to the Indie Game Day Field Guide. I'm honored and it's my pleasure to share my knowledge with all of you. So, I'm Łukasz Kleinberg, Polish game designer, and you can call me just Luke. You can find me on Twitter at LKleinberg. I'm co-founder and game producer at Future Salt Entertainment Indie Game Dev Studio, where we create story-driven action games with great adventure and soft puzzles that go straight to the minds and hearts of players, currently working on Solomon Snow*, First Contact retro action shooter alien game. I'm also a co-founder of ClipGo, where you can discover the world around you using an augmented reality app. And I have a daily job. I work as a game programmer in a great company, Spoco, a CD project Studio, on the Witcher Monster Slayer mobile game. So I have about 20 years experience in IT industry, 10 years in the gaming industry, but 4 years commercially in that sector. And today we'll be talking about how to plan, produce and execute everything with success for small teams or even for one person. And of course, opinions are my own. I decided to divide the topic into three stages. The first is short introduction about Scrum Kaizen. A second, I will tell you a bit more on some examples, how does it work. And some are the last one. I'm not an academic man, so I'll try to keep in short and share some practical knowledge with you. The method that I'm going to talk about is based on Scrum, agile work methodology, Kaizen, philosophy of small steps and constant continuous improvement, and it will be a bit related to psychology too. In short, how does it work in Scrum? First of all, you have to remember that this is a change of mindset, and it consists in the fact that as a team, you have a product backlog, a list of various tasks to do, more precisely goals to be achieved, a sprint backlog, and in short periods of time called sprints, for example, seven, 14 days, some fragments of our game are provided by your team, And during this time as a team or one person, depends on your current situation. You will discover your weaknesses, strength, and learn the power of burn tasks per sprint, which will allow you to plan your work more accurately with each sprint and ultimately to predict when certain stages will end. In the examples stage, I will also touch a very important topic of definition of done and task estimation and why I am in favor of estimating work in story points instead of man hour or man day. But what about Kaizen, because I mentioned that Uriel too? This philosophy will allow you to enter a certain daily routine to improve each process that takes place during the game development but it is also an ideal method for our minds to feel comfortable during work that is very important for example to divide big task to smallest then you can see the right progress of your work and it is just better for you for your team if i were to compare kaizen to for example sport then we could compare it to a personal training plan for example for the first seven days you do one push-up every day. For the second week you add two more and so after three months your mind is very comfortable and you can do about 20 push-ups at once. It costs us time, but it is a good for our mind. Mind feels very good, very healthy. Thanks to the appropriate approach to planning the implementation of tasks, We easily enter a daily routine, we improve ourselves, our team, thanks to which our efficiency in the implementation of subsequent tasks is higher every day. So Kaizen also allows you to pay attention to other things. For example, in our company we have the Git pull request process in which I deliver the completed task to the code repository, ready for code review, with a description. And this description can be continuous, modified and improved. So we are creating guidelines for other programmers or new employees thanks to Kaizen philosophy. I think that after this short introduction we can move on a real-life example. During planning we'll use the appropriate software, in my case it is just a Jira for backlog, sprint backlog and for the documentation is a confluence. However, if you are alone you can use many other solutions. Back then when I didn't have access to this type of solutions, it was many years ago, I was just backlogging in regular Excel or text file, setting priorities and tasks Today you have access to Jira, Asana, Trello, Axo and many other solutions. And to maintain documentation you can safely use for example Google Docs or any other cloud solution. Alright, so what we need to plan and how does it work? I will be basing on our game Solomon Snow First Contact. Uh, It would be very big feature to develop something like a skill system. You should think carefully about the architecture of this system, but we already know at the high level that it will consist of at least two tasks. The implementation of skills and the implementation of visual settings, I mean design. However, the more we drill down, it will turn out that each skill has its own logic. So if we have 15 skills, there are 15 separate tasks for their implementation, plus user interface tasks. When we start to think about the UI, it will turn out that for different resolutions, whether it is a mobile version or PC or arcade machines, it has to be slightly different. So we must also divide the UI into three separate tasks in terms of implementation. So what about design? Well, it must be designed, created by designer. In order to be well designed, we must prepare an appropriate game design document describing our needs and possibilities so that the designer knows how to design skill system UI and tasks related to communication between design and development team should also be added to this backlog. In this way, we have broken two main tasks, or rather we can say two epics, into 19 different tasks. It turns out that as a result of further talks, this is not all. We need sound and animation, so here we are creating another free task. two for sound designer, where one of them is communication with sound designer and preparation of appropriate documentation for him, the second for sound designer and the third for an animator who will design and implement for us nicely animations for skills. So, we already have 21 tasks. It turns out, however, that the animator needs support from the designer. It needs stop-motion animations, appropriate sprites, so the next task comes for the designer. So we already have 22 tasks. Some designer has prepared the sounds. Now we have to implement them and the last implementation task is coming. So 23 in total. Of course, we don't forget about the tests. These are the next tasks. As we are a very small team, each team member is also a tester of his and his uh, colleagues' areas. So together, we already have 26 tasks. But still, we need to add the last two tasks called grooming, which we'll be talking a bit later, and pre-planning. This is how I presented the process of planning one feature in a very short time. So, what next? Definition of done, every task you need to describe as good as you can, that give you an information that you need to make this and this to finish work. For example, for sound designer it can be like this. Design a sound which is played during learning the skill. Yes, so you need to describe every task very clear. It is the right time to define and estimate tasks we created and we'll use the so-called story points and in estimation we need to talk about a few things such as story points and priorities and for priorities in my case I use the so-called Moscow method that is must, should, could, want. So now what are story points exactly? They are Relative measure of the item to be completed in the Product Backlog. It is generally accepted that story points are a sequence of Fibonacci, so inside our team we took values from 1 to 5, where 1 is the least time-consuming task and we already know how to do it five is a turn-based task that requires more work and time. So we choose one task from one story point and one from five story points. And just estimate the rest. Of course, you can take any number of story points, but that is the team's decision. This way from sprint to sprint you will start to get to know the strength of the team of or yourself. In short, how many tasks you can take for the next sprint. Okay, so product backlog is a prioritized list to be implemented. Product backlog sprint is a backlog in which we plan the task that we will perform within for example 7 days sprint because it is optimal for us and doesn't make us lazy but it is also good due the fact that we work elsewhere during the day and we are developing games during evenings and weekends of course in scrum there is something like daily stand-up meetings but we discovered that for us it doesn't really work in short period of time seven days sprints that is why we changed it to one as a retrospective at the end of every sprint where we are talking about our walk and what problems we had. During the sprint grooming is always performed at least one time in seven days. That is we clean the task, we make them more consistent, we describe the task from the backlog in more detail and we also pre-estimate them. What we have added to our process is the so called pre-planning that doesn't really exist in Scrum. This is the process between grooming and planning where the product owner, for example you or someone who is responsible for that, goes through everything one more time and gets familiar with the requirements and makes sure that we are ready to plan so that planning goes quickly planning time is also important and for our small team of 5 people we took an hour what goes beyond the 1 hour will not actually be realized at first it may look like a complicated process but when you enter it you will appreciate its simplicity stability and give you a peace during the game development there is still a lot to say, for example c i d i continuous integration and delivery, which is a great complement to this process, but this is a separate topic. All right, guys. I hope that was interesting for you, and yeah, just use this, and your life as a game developer will be easier if someone would like you from you to catch me. Just use Twitter the fastest way. Thanks, Zach, once again, and yep, I wish for everyone a good time in Game Dev Way and a lot of success, even if they are small. Thanks.
0: And there you have it a sort of breakdown of the Scrum planning and Kaizen philosophy. These are some things that I have heard about, but I never actually the time to really research them and have them broken down for me in the way that luke has done today and yeah i think what he said in his last sort of sentence or his sign off that if you use these ideas and philosophies your life as a game dev will just be easier He's absolutely right about that, and especially if you're doing this for money. I mean, I still think it's a good thing to do if you're a hobbyist game dev, but if you're, especially if you're doing this for money. I think these planning frameworks and these continuous improvement ideas are really important for a single person and a team just to make sure that the production is always kind of moving forward and improving. And if your dream is to make games for money and work in a small indie studio, Or in a AAA studio, you're going to have to be familiar with these ideas. So yeah, I hope Luke's breakdown kind of introduced us to those ideas. Big thanks to him. I'll leave a link to his uh, Twitter in the show notes so you can give him a follow and just see what he's working on. As for me, you can always reach out to me on Twitter as well, at underscore Zachavelli underscore. And I'm active on every day, except for Sunday, on uh, the community Discord. So that's a good place for conversation with me, others, and probably Luke as well. So yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.